This is OBG Project's Grand Rounds Live, a podcast of the OBG Project's monthly webinar featuring cutting-edge OB and GYN topics. Our Grand Rounds Live webinar is free for OBG First members. With an OBG First membership, you have access to the webinar slides, handouts, and future Grand Rounds Live webinars. To learn more about membership and other perks of an OBG First membership, go to obgproject.com forward slash get first. Enjoy the webinar. As physicians, we all know it's important to stay on top of the latest research and guidelines. That's why we created OBG First's guideline notifications. Mobile-friendly daily notifications of guideline changes and research summaries. Make staying informed of new announcements and releases easier, all for the cost of a cup of coffee. We've got a special offer just for our listeners for two months free off their OBG First subscription. Go to obgproject.com backslash get first and use promo code OBGSpotify at checkout. That's obgproject.com backslash get first promo code OBGSpotify. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the OBG Project's Grand Round Live. Today, we have a really, really exciting topic. Um, we are going to be talking about coding and payment, how to achieve equity and reimbursement. Today, we have the one and only Dr. Barbara Levy, and she's going to be talking about a whole range of things um, from coding, payment, and then we have some special surprises at the end and in the works for you. So stay tuned. Um, for now, I will hand it over and let us begin. Great, thanks Dr. Comfort. So um, I am a self-acknowledged coding nerd and um, I wanna encourage any of you to ask questions as we go along or we'll cover questions at the end, but recognize that I've been doing this for 30 years or more and so if I use any language or anything that doesn't make sense, please, um, please do let us know. So, John, let's go ahead and, and get started. And if anyone has any questions, please feel free to type them in the box. We will be monitoring them throughout the webinar and um, we can answer them all at the end. Okay, John, I am not seeing the presentation. Don't, ah, there we go. Perfect. So um, I don't have any conflicts of interest with this presentation and let's go on to the next. Next slide, yeah. So what I'd like, oh, go back one. Yeah, so the objectives for this are to be able to apply coding principles to maximize and optimize the payment that we receive. It's really silly for us to be throwing $100 bills on the floor and walking over them and not collecting them. So I want all of you to understand how RVUs for codes are determined and how we can achieve better parity in our payment. And then we'll talk a little bit um, as we have time for pay for performance value-based contracting, what those things are based on, and how we can optimize the outcomes for ourselves and our practices and those things. So next slide. 
So money matters, um, and it, this is a money game. And to play the game, you have to know the rules. So the payers and our employers count on the fact that we went into medicine because we love practicing medicine, and we don't really like the business aspects. Um, and they count on that disinterested, and they take advantage of us every single day. And what I would like to tell you is that I think that payment for physicians is bad enough without leaving legitimate money on the table. So what we're gonna talk about today are this, the tools and the mechanisms for making sure that we are collecting uh, what we legitimately deserve for the care that we deliver. Next slide. So coding is a fact of life. Um, recognize that physicians are personally responsible for the codes that are submitted to payers. And we are the ones who end up in jail if there is fraudulent billing. So there's a reason for us to pay some attention to the coding, even if we're employed by big health systems. It's important for us to assign the codes ourselves because only we know what we actually did. Um, so you have to assign the codes yourself and you have to document the care properly to assure that you get proper reimbursement. Um, understanding the basics of coding is really important and understanding how codes are valued is also essential for fair payment. Uh, next slide, please. So there are three main coding systems. There's ICD-10, CPT, and HCPCS. So ICD-10 clinical module describes the why, and there is a PS, a professional services module that's used in hospitals. But for our purposes, we use ICD-10-CM to describe why we did something, and we use CPT-4 and HCPCS to describe what we did. Next slide. So, Coding is one issue, but so is documentation. And often payers will ask to see our clinical documentation, our medical records to decide whether they are going to uh, pay for something or not pay for something. So it's very important not only to document what was done, but document why it was done and then assign the codes based on what you've documented. And I think we'll do a whole nother webinar on the new documentation requirements for evaluation and management services, which have changed dramatically in 2021. We are not required to do all of those bullets and all of that. You know, we don't have to look in somebody's ear when she has preeclampsia anymore to get an upper level uh, code. So we can talk about that at some point, but the documentation is critically important. Next slide. So you also have to know how your payments are determined. Most of our payments are determined by the resource-based relative value system, RVRVS, but there are contracts that are determined in other ways. Some are discounted fee for service. That was the old, old days where you got to charge whatever you wanted and the payers just discounted that by a certain amount. Um, there's usual customary and reasonable, which was even older than discounted fee for service. But many of the payers that we work with establish their own fee schedule, and most are variations on RBRVS. So even though it doesn't seem like we need to pay attention to what's happening in Medicare, and it's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, that determines every year 
what the assigned RVUs are for particular code, we still have to pay attention to it because the private payers often will pay a percentage of Medicare. So their fee schedule may say that they pay 120% of Medicare if we're lucky, or if it's a Medicaid contract, it might say that it pays 85% of Medicare. But most of the contracts in 2022 and going forward are based on RBRVS. Now, the newer value-based contracting may be based on capitated payments, and that requires a lot of actuarial work to decide what, what's a net positive for us. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But it's possible to lose our shirts with a capitated payment program if we're not very careful. Next step. Next slide, please. So the other piece that's really important for us is, as I've said, the evaluation and management services codes changed dramatically in 2021 for office visits. They're gonna change in 2023 for hospital and observation services. And so it's very important to know what these updates are every year. It's also true that the RVUs change every year, that the Federal Register, usually around the 1st of November, publishes a list of the RVUs for the year. And then ACOG's coding committee works to try to correct any inequities that we find in those things. But it is an ongoing process of making sure that somebody didn't either make a mistake or um, cut RVUs for an inappropriate reason. The other thing that changes every year is ICD-10 codes. So um, there may be more and more codes to describe the services that we actually perform. And it's helpful to assign ICD-10 codes beyond what you need for payment, but also what you may need for pay for performance or for risk adjustment for your patient population. So recognize that we're sort of trained to assign one ICD-10 code to justify the services that we provided, but it may be important to assign more than one that more clearly defines a patient. For example, most of us, including me, don't typically put in the ICD-10 codes for obesity uh, when we're coding for a particular patient. But that's important as payers are looking to do risk adjustment models and pay for performance and value-based payment that we do code relevant diagnoses that impact the care that we're delivering. And there's no question that obesity will impact the risk associated with surgery or prenatal care. Next slide, please. So there are three components to relative value units. Um, there's a work component, which is the one that most of us pay a lot of attention to, and work by statute. So this is by law, is defined as the time it takes to perform a service and the intensity to require to perform that service in a typical patient. There's a practice expense component, and that's divided into two areas. One is direct practice expenses, what is my equipment cost? What are my clinical staff inputs? And then there are indirect expenses related to um, the cost of renting my office space and the, my geographical location and the overall cost of delivering care if you're primary care or you're a urologist. And it's those indirect expenses actually 
where urology practices are paid higher than OBGYNs, and we'll get into why that is. And then there's a very small uh, component of the RVUs for professional liability. Next slide, please. So the work RVUs for procedures are calculated based on the time and intensity for each of these components, and those are summed. So there's a preoperative assessment, it's called pre-service work, that's about what do you do the morning of surgery or the day before, writing your orders, dictating your history and physical, assessing the patient before surgery. It's everything up until the point where you make an incision. So it's a scrubbing, dressing, waiting, all of that is in the preoperative work. Then there's the procedure skin to skin, which is what we typically think of as surgeons as what should be allocated for our work RVUs. It's like how much work and intensity is it to do the procedure? But the work RVUs also encompass the immediate post-operative care, like how sick is this patient post-op? How long does she stay in the recovery room? It's writing the orders, but it's also the number of hospital visits before discharge. It includes the work of discharge and care coordination. And then it also includes the typical number of office visits during the global period for the procedure. So several of the publications that I've been looking at in the last month or two in the gray and the green journals are comparing work RVUs for urology and OBGYN, but they're only looking at the skin-to-skin intraservice components of those procedures and the number of post-operative visits in the hospital, hospital length of stay, and the typical number of office visits are major contributors to the total work RVUs for these procedures. So we can't forget about those other components. Next slide, please. So payments under RBRVS, then every component of the relative value units is adjusted for geographic location. Um, you know, rent is going to be a lot higher in New York City than it is in rural Iowa. So there's what's called a gypsy factor, or it's a, an adjustment for the, for the geography. And then there's a dollar conversion factor. So you may have seen some of the um, communications in the last week or so about Medicare conversion and that there was gonna be a very large decrease in the dollar conversion factor for 2022. And Congress just came through uh, last week and uh, corrected that so that the dollar conversion factor is going to go up, not beyond what it was for 2021, but beyond what they had proposed uh, for 2022. The work and the malpractice RVUs stay the same for all codes. So if a urologist does a procedure and an OBGYN does a procedure, the work and the malpractice RVUs are the same. It is the practice expense RVUs that might differ and it differs by the site of service. So if you do a procedure in a hospital outpatient center or an ambulatory surgery center, those facilities charge a facility fee. But if we do something in our office, there is no facility fee, and we get paid additionally for our resources that are required to provide that service. So next slide, we'll give you an illustration. 
So again, the work remains the same. The practice expense varies tremendously. So an example is endometrial ablation, 58353. If we do that in a facility, an ambulatory surgery center, a hospital outpatient center, we get paid $298.50 by Medicare, assuming a $50 conversion factor, which is way higher than Medicare's. Medicare's is about 36. If we were to do the same procedure in the office, we would get paid $1,800 or more. And so why is that? Well, we are using our own space. We are using our own staff. We are purchasing equipment. And overall, moving something from a facility to the office allows us to capture some overhead in running our offices that we wouldn't otherwise be able to capture. So if I go to the ASC and do a procedure, my office is sitting empty and that's sunk cost. If I can move that procedure into my office, I'm not only utilizing the space, but I'm getting paid for it. Next slide, please. So the whole methodology for calculating practice expenses changed um, quite a long time ago now. It, used to be that CMS calculated that um, in a top-down way. They looked at the total cost of what it, what it costs to run a practice, and they divided it by the number of procedures and RVUs. Um, in 2007, they decided to do bottom-up, which means they had to account for every single aspect. And they used surveys to do that, and they used some pretty flawed data Unfortunately, ACOG did not provide updated data for those surveys, and it's one of the reasons why we see a discrepancy in, in overall payment to urologists versus OBGYNs. It's that practice expense piece. Urologists use a lot of their prostate ablation equipment um, in their offices, and so the expense for running their offices was jacked up, and that's where a lot of that came from. Next slide. So a couple of other things. We as OBGYNs tend to under-report the time it takes us to perform procedures on surveys that are sent out by the RBRVS Update Committee. That is a committee of the AMA that brings together members of multiple specialties around a table where they duke it out for a zero-sum game. So the number of dollars in the Medicare system is fixed. And if OBGYNs get more money, then everybody else gets less. So the Resource-Based Relative Value Update Committee, the RUC, determines or sends recommendations to CMS for the work and direct practice expense components of RVUs. So to get a work RVU through the RUC, Specialty societies send out surveys to their members to ask how long does it typically take to do a hysterectomy or a DNC or a cone biopsy. And those survey data are presented to the RUC, and the RUC then adjudicates the intensity of the work and whether they believe the time of the work. 
Our problem is that other specialties think of our patient population as younger and healthier, and it's difficult for us presenting to the RUC and to CMS to argue for significant intensity when our patients typically don't go to the ICU, their length of stay is generally pretty short. So it's a lot of work for us to try to get the intensity level where we think it should be. And then we shoot ourselves in the foot because on the surveys that are sent out by ACOG, our members under-report the time it takes to actually perform the procedures. And there've been a couple of studies done with the NISQIP, uh, National Surgical Quality Improvement Project, which collects skin-to-skin -skin time for procedures, showing that some of the RUC time is under-reported in gynecology. Next slide, please. So why are OBGYNs paid less? One issue is the practice expense data. The second issue though is the definition of work as time and intensity. And when we underreport the time, that's a problem. And then when we become more efficient and we move procedures from inpatient procedures to outpatient procedures, think laparoscopic hysterectomy, there are fewer hospital days and therefore less time, which brings the payment down. What we have tried to do over time is to say, well, gee, we do more work in the, in the office tracking these patients, but if we don't see them for an office visit, it doesn't count based on this law towards the RVUs. So when we've seen the RVUs go down for things like hysterectomy, it's because our length of hospital stay has gone down or they've become outpatients. And that when CMS looks at that, they say, well, it took less time and the intensity didn't go up enough to maintain the same cost. So that's really the crux of the problem that we face in OBGYN. As we get more efficient, it makes zero economic sense at all, but this is the law. Next slide. So a couple things that we can do to, to equalize the playing field here. One of those is to use modifiers. Modifiers are numeric codes that identify excluded services. That means services that are not bundled into a service and should be paid additionally. And it also gives that information to other payers. And modifiers can have a significant impact on total payment for service. Next slide. So one is the 24 modifier. It's an unrelated evaluation and management service during the global period. So let's think about obstetrics, for example. Um, we may see a patient for some other condition or a new problem. She happens to be an OB patient, but we're seeing her for some other issue, a vaginitis problem or some other thing. We would have to use this 24 modifier to get paid for that visit because she's within the OB global. And so if we're not using that modifier, the payers will bundle that ENM service and not pay for it separately. 
you don't use this for treatment of complications and it absolutely should be treated paid in full uh, by a payer when it's properly used. So I'll give you some examples. One is we've done a hysterectomy, a patient comes in with menopausal symptoms during the 90 day global period. Management of menopause is not part of the work of treating the post-operative care of somebody with a hysterectomy and that can be coded separately. Similarly, if we've done a cancer procedure for somebody, um, the coordination of her cancer care is not part of the post-operative work for, this, for the operation itself, and that can be reported separately. Next slide. So OB examples, um, additional visits for nausea and hydration, admitting a patient, anytime you admit a patient, um, prior to her delivery episode, that can be um, and should be coded separately and separately paid. So any admission for preeclampsia, for pyelonephritis, for COVID, and you're caring for the patient, um, those should be evalu hospital evaluation and management services with the proper ICD-10 code, but you may have to use a modifier to document that this is outside of the global period. Next slide. GYN examples, we talked about menopause. Um, vaccinations, for example. Let's say a patient comes in, um, she's post-op from a hysterectomy, and you give her a flu vaccine. You can absolutely code for that separately. Um, we're discussing management or care after a cancer diagnosis or we're seeing her for a condition that's unrelated to her procedure. All of that should and can be coded with a 24 modifier, just telling the payer that this was unrelated to the, post to the typical post-operative care for this patient. It's not a wound complication, it's not an infectious complication, it's something different. Next slide. So the 25 modifier is for significant and separately identifiable evaluation and management services that are done at the same visit as a procedure. So the evaluation and management has to be significant. That means it requires medical decision-making and time. And the payer has to be able to see it documented as separately identifiable. So if you do a single note and you combine all this stuff together, and you don't separate it out, then they may deny the evaluation and management portion of this encounter because they'll say it's not separately identifiable. So this is one of the areas where documentation is really, really important. I always write two separate notes. I write my evaluation and management note, and then I separately document a procedure note for, for the procedure. So next slide. An example of that would be a patient who comes in with abnormal bleeding. You take her history, you do whatever physical examination you need to do, and you make a decision at the time that she needs an endometrial biopsy. Well, it's best practice and it's good care to do that at the same visit. Um, but in order to get paid for both your cognitive work of making that decision and the procedure, you would have to use the modifier. Another example, patient is referred for consultation for an abnormal pap smear. You sit down with the patient, you take a history, you look at the, you look at the referral doctor's notes, 
and you decide to perform colposcopy and biopsy, or you decide to perform a leap during this first encounter with the patient, the consultation would have to have the 25 modifier applied to it, or it would not get paid. You would only get paid for doing the procedure. Um, ultrasounds and other kinds of tests, like pregnancy tests, don't always require a modifier if you do them at the time of an evaluation and management service, but it doesn't hurt to use the modifier. So I would recommend that you get into the habit of using the 25 modifier when you're coding for an evaluation and management service and you're doing something else at the same encounter, because that will ensure that you're getting paid for both. Next slide. So again, the documentation has to be really clear that the evaluation and management service is separate. A distinct procedure note is really, really helpful. It's important though, you don't have to have a unique or different ICD-10 diagnosis for the two different things. The coding rules are that as long as you use that modifier appropriately and the documentation is distinct, that your reason for the visit can be the same. Your diagnosis can be the same. Next slide. So some surgical modifiers that are really important. The 58 modifier says that what I'm doing now is related to what I did and it's during the global period. So it's generally used for an added course of treatment. It's planned prospectively and it's more extensive. Next slide. So examples of that would be, you do a DNC for abnormal bleeding, you find that she has endometrial carcinoma and you bring her in for hysterectomy within the 10-day global period of the DNC, you will not be paid for the hysterectomy if you do not use the 58 modifier documenting that this was a staged, planned return to the operating room for a more extensive and necessary procedure. The same is true for a hysterectomy following a cone biopsy or a LEAP. Cone and LEAP have 90-day global periods. So if you do a hysterectomy on day 89, after a cone um, for carcinoma in situ, you won't get paid for the hysterectomy if you don't use the 58 modifier. Another example might be a lymphadenectomy following oophorectomy when pathology comes back and it's a carcinoma. Next slide. So the 59 modifier defines distinct procedural services. This is important because CPT has certain codes that are defined as separate procedures. And whenever you see that in a CPT code descriptor, it means everything else is bundled into that procedure. And if something isn't bundled in for some reason, you believe that it should not be bundled in, you did it at a different time during the day, or let's say it's like two sides, you're doing ovarian cystectomy on one side and you're doing it on the other side, um, you may want to use the 59 modifier to designate for the payer that this is an appropriate carve-out from the separate procedure designation. It might require a separate incision. For ovarian cystectomies, it's a separate excision. And um, it's important to understand, sometimes when we spend two hours doing um, ureterolysis, for example, that is 
bundled into hysterectomy services and codes. If we feel like this should be paid separately, then we have to use the modifier and often then um, call the payer and explain why. So your documentation would have to describe that what you did was extensive and beyond what you would typically do for a normal patient. So the documentation, if you're gonna use this modifier is critically important so that the payer understands why you're carving this out as an additional service. Next slide. Sometimes two of us um, operate together. They can do distinct parts of a sing single procedure. So if the procedure isn't described with a single code, then each one of us can just code for the particular procedure that we do and we're fine. But for example, there's a code that combines hysterectomy with a um, bladder suspension. So if a urogynecologist does the bladder suspension and I do the hysterectomy, then we have to code that as a single code. It's not correct coding to distinguish those two and build them separately. We have to build them as a single CPT code, but then we use the modifier 62 to say that we were two surgeons with two different um, skill sets and we are co-surgeons, if you will that we are each the primary surgeon for the portion of the procedure that we did. And there are a bunch of Medicare rules for that that we won't go into right now, but this is important to know when there's a single CPT code to describe the procedure that was performed. Next slide. So how do you like get all of this stuff in your head? And, and when the payer tries to tell you that they're not going to pay you for a 25 modifier or 24 modifier. Uh, you need some help. You need some oomph behind you. And so ACOG's Committee on Health Economics and Coding publishes a book every year that helps fellows contest unfair bundles. It says what a typical patient should look like and what things, if they're performed, are appropriate to code separately. It's got pages that are ready for copy and um, submission to payers to um, request reconsideration. And there's an electronic format now that's available so that you can look it up by CPT code and see what the experts on the committee have decided is included and excluded from any particular procedure. Next slide. And here are just some resources for you to get to. Um, the Federal Register publishes the Correct Coding Initiative, CCI edits. CCI edits are the things that really do us in. They're the group at CMS that decides that, for example, lysing adhesions is bundled into every base GYN surgical code that's abdominal. Um, and so it's those CCI edits if you want to know, am I able to code separately for some additional work that I've done? Um, the Federal Register and the CCI edits is a place to look at it. ACOG actually keeps up to date. They are updated every quarter and ACOG on ACOG's website keeps track of those for GYN only so that you don't have to sift through all of the edits across all of medicine 
to get to what's important to know for us. Um, the AMA also has publications that are helpful. They have a code manager um, and CPT assistant that will help you determine um, whether coding is appropriate or if a payer comes back and says, we're not gonna pay you for this, is that reasonable or not reasonable? Next slide. So we're just gonna spend a couple of minutes about pay for performance and about value-based payment because it's up and coming. And I think it's important for us as providers to understand that the payers have been collecting data on us for a really long time. And they collect that data based on claims that we submit. So as we look at pay for performance, as we look for measures of quality, we have to understand what the system is. Next slide. And of course, the question is, is this really all about patients and quality? Next slide. And the answer is no. <laughs> Next slide. It's really about money. It's really about um, America's health insurance plans looking for ways to pay us less. And so it's so important that we monitor and look at the attempts of payers to capitalize on pay for performance to reduce our payment for different things. And think about the 39 week early elective delivery measure, for example, and trying to pay us less if we weren't able to code for the reasons that we delivered somebody early. Um, think about the measures that exist and whether those are really quality metrics that matter to the care of a patient or they're just things that are easy to measure. Next, next slide. So when they say about it's not about the money, it's always about the money. And unfortunately, it's really easy to convince members of Congress and others that quality is, is important, but it's about how do we measure that quality? And these measures are pushed by America's health insurance plans as measures that they can get from claims. So the coding is so very important because they're using those claims to decide whether we're practicing quality medicine. They're not looking at our chart notes. They're not looking at clinical data. They're looking at claims data to make that judgment. Next slide. They look at our efficiency. So for health policy purposes, that's attained when a given level of quality is achieved at the lowest cost. And unfortunately in medicine, we've sort of told the world that quality equals one for all of us, that we all deliver high quality care. And so what they're looking at in the equation is really how much we cost them to deliver the care. And it's the total cost of care. It's the cost of medications that we prescribe. It's the cost of how many office visits did we take? It's the cost of what else does that patient do that they may decide belongs in a quality bundle. Next slide. So docs who use more resources per patient during a defined interval of care um, will be paid less. And it's very important for us to use all of the appropriate ICD-10 codes so that there's appropriate risk adjustment for our patient populations. Um, but the data is so poor in 
claims data, that this becomes totally frustrating for all of us trying to improve care for women and trying to improve reimbursement for appropriate and reasonable care. We just don't have enough codes to describe the clinical nuance of what we do to translate into appropriate pay for performance. Next slide. So the typical measure of efficiency is the ratio of actual resource use to expected resource use. And think about cost of medications here. Like we don't have any control over what a payer decides to pay a pharma company for a particular drug. We also have no control over what a particular payer has contracted with our hospital for what that hospital charges might be. And so we're in a position where we have no control over the biggest costs of care that we deliver. Next slide. So there's some major questions here from a policy standpoint. Who defines what the expected resources are? Um, how much of a carve out will there be? Like, is there enough reward for being efficient that it compensates for the reduction in the number of services that we can bill for? And what's the transparency here? And it's um, it's pretty poor right now. So you should know that there are a lot of us out there advocating for transparency in a lot of these issues and advocating for valuable um, performance measures that measure what matters to patients and matters to the public with respect to outcomes. Next slide. I think I'm going to skip over these things because I want to leave some time for questions. Um, next slide. Let's keep kind of run through these a little bit quickly. So in the end, if we're not part of the solution, we're the problem. And as OBGYNs, we have to learn um, about coding. We have to start looking at our own data and accounting for the outcomes of the care that we provide. Because if we don't do this, others will, and they're using flawed data. They're using administrative data, and their incentives are not the incentives that we would wish. Next slide. So if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think it's critically important for us to be at the table as women's healthcare providers, as um, recipients of these policies that impact us and our practices, uh, we really have to put in the time and energy uh, to learn these things. So I'm going to stop there and answer any questions that you all have. Okay, well, thank you so much. That was such a really, really thorough, great overview. And um, in keeping with the menu theme, you know, it, you made it really clear that it seems as though patients are getting a prefix menu and physicians are a la carte. So I think that you provided some good um, motivation for our uh, practicing physicians to um, have a better understanding of coding. And, you know, you have a wonderful way of explaining it. As a self-described coding nerd, how did you become interested in this? Like, how did you start to learn about it? It's, it's a little overwhelming with all the resources out there. It is. Um, so it's really interesting. I was um, involved in leadership in the Laparoscopy Association in the early 90s. And 
you know, those of you who are too young to remember, the first laparoscopic hysterectomy was done like in 1988, 1989, and we didn't have any codes to describe it. And one of the rules of CPT is that if you don't have a code, you have to use an unspecified code, like a 999. And it's really hard to get paid for an unspecified code. So mm -hmm. the Laparoscopy Association was complaining that we didn't have the codes. And fortunately, one of our leaders was connected to ACOG and ACOG said, well, just send somebody to our coding committee. Like I didn't even know there was a coding committee. I had no idea. Um, I had no idea how a CPT code becomes a code or anything about RBRBS. I mean, that was just coming into play. So lap AAGL sent me to the coding committee as a liaison. Mm. And it was like drinking from a fire hose. I mean, I had no idea about any of these things. And there were a couple of men on the committee who had been involved in coding for a really long time. We had a member on the CPT editorial panel and I started to learn and I started to help craft some of the codes for laparoscopy. Um, mm. What's interesting at ACOG is that if you are a liaison to a committee, you serve as long as you're parent organization wants to send you. Hmm. And coding is one of those things, if you rotate off every two years, you never get the depth and breadth of experience that you need. So as a liaison, I got deeper and deeper into it. I ended up presenting codes to the editorial panel so that we could get CPT codes for the things that we wanted. And in about 1997, ACOG's representative to the RBRVS update committee called me one Sunday morning and he said, you really need to come do this. We are a table of 29 men sitting around the table, including himself who was representing ACOG. And he said, we need a woman representing women's health. And I looked at my two kids and my practice and all this stuff that I was doing. And I said, oh my God, I can't do one more thing. And then my father's voice was in my head that said, somebody opens a door for you, walk through it. So I agreed to go to a meeting and see what, what it was like. And I was, talk about drinking from a fire hose. It was an entirely <laughs> separate language. Like I had no, they were talking about IWPUT, intra-service work per unit time. And they had all these calculators and all these things that they were doing that I had no idea about. So I, it was interesting and I was learning a lot about other aspects of medicine that I didn't really have much exposure to. So I decided it was worth my time and I became ACOG's member to the RBRVS committee in the late 90s and um, by 2009 I became the chair of that committee and chaired it for six years. And now I sit on the CPT editorial panel. So it's about, you know, it's a 25 to 30 year process. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that you, you know, said it felt like drinking from a fire hose. And I know that that's a lot, how a lot of people feel, especially when there's so many different intricate ways to kind of code and a lot of, I think, misconceptions about how to best optimize your billing. Um, are there any, what's your favorite resource to use for, you know, busy clinicians who maybe, you know, don't have time to pour over the quarterly annual updates? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. I think ACOG does have that, that book that comes out okay. annually, um, describes it by CPT code, which makes it really, really good. 
And I know that our plan at OBG Project is to start putting some things together. We're going to do some quick um, podcasts and some um, enduring materials. And I think long term, our plan is to do some Q&A. So if people have coding questions, we have um, one of our one of the coders that worked with me for years at ACOG, who's brilliant at, at OBGY encoding. Um, so we may have like a question of the month or a question of the week where we can try to help to answer some of those questions and be a resource for everybody. Yeah, and, and I think that this kind of highlights that we, we don't have any really good, easily accessible coding resources other than, you know, in my personal experience, multiple emails from my hospital administration. <laughs> asking yeah, and it's important billing. to know that, that <laughs> hospital coders are not outpatient coders. Right. And they don't have the expertise in the modifiers that I was talking about or how to code for office visit um, procedures and things. So they're really good at trying to optimize hospital payment, mm. but they're not so good at what we need to do for our day-to-day -day encounters. Yeah, busy practice. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think that those are all the questions that we have. I think you did such a thorough job of explaining things that no one had any clarifying questions. And I think that everyone can stay tuned for some really exciting things that um, are in the works to kind of fill this gap, but a really necessary gap because it would be nice to um, be able to get our get paid appropriately for the work that everyone's doing. No question about it. No. Thanks for listening to this OBG Project podcast. We at the OBG Project know you're passionate about staying up to date on the latest guidelines, research, and clinical updates. That's why we have the OBG Insider, a free weekly e-newsletter written for physicians and by physicians. Get mobile-friendly summaries, articles that will affect your practice, and alerts for new OBG education resources, all for free. Our insider articles are all open access and never behind a paywall. To start your free subscription, go to the OBG Insider at www.obgproject.com forward slash insider to sign up today.